Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we are going to be talking about the best team in the NBA, and I'm sure most of you will be expecting me to say the Golden State Warriors, but actually, as of right now, the team with the best record in basketball is the Milwaukee Bucks. So I'm here today to discuss those Milwaukee Bucks with Nathan Smith, and Nathan, how are you doing? Doing pretty well, Nick. Thanks for having me back. Um, I'm ready to talk some uh, Milwaukee basketball. Let's do it. And if we're talking Milwaukee basketball, there is one and only one place to start, which is with Giannis Adetokounmpo. I think that he will run away with the MVP award this coming award season, and I think it will be well-deserved. He has taken the leap from all-NBA player to clear MVP candidate and deserving MVP winner. I'm willing to put that out there right about now. Deserving MVP winner in a couple of months when the NBA decides to actually hand out the awards long after anyone stops caring about them. So looking into what we've seen from Giannis so far this year, he's averaging 27 points a game, 12 and a half rebounds a game, six assists per game, a block and a half per game, a steal and a half per game. He's one of the leading contenders for defensive player of the year, as well as in my mind being the leading MVP candidate. And he is the vast majority of the reason why these Milwaukee Bucks are currently at 48 and 15, leading the NBA in record. There really isn't enough that can be said about the kind of year that Giannis is having, but let's throw some more generic praise out there. Nathan, what have you seen from Giannis so far this year? I think Giannis definitely deserves all the praise. You're absolutely right. Um, the thing with Giannis is there's not really a weakness to his game. Um, certainly you can talk about shooting and three-point shooting, but... That doesn't appear to be a weakness that's going to be there long-term at all. He's not a great three-point shooter by any means, still in the 20s, but he's improved in each month um, so far this season. And really, what's not to like with the surrounding roster around there? Um, the complementary pieces really allow him to just attack the basket, um, whether it's in a half-court setting or on fast break. And he's really been able to just dominate at the rim, both offensively and defensively. And you really couldn't ask for a better situation than what um, Coach Budenholzer um, has given him. We will definitely talk more about what Coach Bud has brought to the team so far this year. But when you're talking about Giannis, there's sort of been this trope that, you know, the one thing that he has left to get is that three-point shot. And as soon as he gets that three-point shot, you know, watch out, league, it's all over. Well, two things on that front. The first thing being that for the first three months of this season, Giannis basically showed us that he is such a dominant force in and around the basket that... He doesn't really need that three-point shot. For a while, he was on track to break the record for dunks in a season set by Shaq in, I think it was the 2001 season. It was either that year or the year after. But Giannis has been so ridiculously effective around the basket. The kind of numbers there that you see from centers, honestly, and pretty much nobody else. But then you get to that three-point shot. And the thing about that is that Giannis is actually shooting 40% right now in the two-game sample size of the month of March. He also shot 40% from deep during the month of February, and if he can keep that up, I mean, man, it was already kind of over for the rest of the league, given that Giannis is clearly the MVP frontrunner right now at the age of 24. But if he can keep up that three-point shooting, even in like the 35% range as opposed to the 40% range that he's been at the last couple of months, I mean... There's really no ceiling on him if he can continue to shoot like this. There's really not. I, I think that he's well on his way to being the best um, overall player in the NBA. Um, we could do a whole podcast talking about whether he is or isn't right now, but I think that 35% number is, is a fantastic goal. Um, 
just because you know he's not he's not a sharpshooter. He doesn't need to necessarily be in the forties or anything like that. Although that of course be amazing. But if he can hit around that thirty five percent mark consistently, that'll be just enough, or that'll be more than fine for this team. Um, as we kind of alluded to, we got guys like Middleton, Lopez, Eliasova, Miritich that can that can all bomb from deep. So as long as Giannis is at least okay in that regard, I think uh, the rest of the team will be just fine around him. And speaking of bombing from deep, let's move on to another key front court piece for the Milwaukee Bucks. And this is a bit like rubbing salt in the wound, seeing as I'm talking to a Lakers fan about this. <laughs> but I want to talk about Brooke Lopez. Now, it's funny to me, just because I watched a ton of Brooke Lopez when he was on the New Jersey and then the Brooklyn Nets, and he was one of the most dominant post players in the league, made an all-star game basically as the center fulcrum for those net squads. And in the last three years, really it's only been the last three years, he has transformed himself completely into what he is now, which is basically just a shooting specialist at seven feet tall. And the Bucks do an incredible job with their defensive scheme of basically just parking Brook Lopez in the paint and letting him do what he's really good at on the defensive end, which is protecting the rim and trying to limit him from doing what he doesn't do well on defense, which is play and pick and roll coverage. But it's truly incredible to me the way that the offensive revolution and three-point shooting revolution that's changed the NBA has transformed someone like Brook Lopez so completely. And serious credit to him for expanding. He was always an excellent mid-range jump shooter, but expanding that beyond the three-point line has really extended his career. And now he's the kind of guy where you can see him playing into his late 30s, whereas before you were worried about how long his post-up game would last. Yeah, it's it's really pretty interesting. You know, you look just to kind of circle back to the Lakers part, you, you look at a team that needs, you know, more rim protection and, you know, a, a stretch big man. And Brook Lopez is exactly that. He's doubled down on the success that he had with the Lakers last year, um, shooting more threes this year um, than he ever has. And not only that, he's been um, actually surprisingly good as a rim protector, still not elite, but I mean, w within the system, he's been fantastic. He actually had, believe it or not, six blocks in the first six minutes of the game last night, which I, I, I don't even know what to say about that. That's just <laughs> truly amazing. But He's really been the perfect piece for them at center and because of some of the uh, the depth they have in the front court and um, the versatility, he doesn't have to play, you know, a huge, huge role for them. He can, while he does play minutes in the 30s plenty of times, he can, he can just kind of get that 25, 26, 27, 28 minute a game type role and stretch the floor and do what he does best. The other thing that I think is important to note about Brooke Lopez, and this has been a bit less of a factor this season just because he's been doing so much running from basically the paint on defense to the three-point line on offense, but his most underrated skill for his entire career has been that he's an incredibly effective box-out player. Yes. And same thing with his brother Robin. With Brooke, he would always get like five or six rebounds a game when he was in Brooklyn and people would get on him for rebounding. You know, he's a seven-foot player. He should be a much better rebounder. And then you look at the rate numbers, and the Nets were always a much better rebounding team with him on the floor than with him off the floor. It's just that he wasn't getting those rebounds. And I think the best example nowadays is Steven Adams, where Russ isn't getting the kind of rebounding numbers he's getting if Steven Adams isn't boxing out entire teams on his own. And, you know, that's not as much of a thing for Brooke Lopez this year, just because, again, he's spending so much time beyond the three-point line. But he's a really effective box-out guy and someone who helps you on the glass, even if the rebounds aren't ending up in his hands specifically. Yeah, I think the comparison you made to Steven Adams is perfect. 
got um, a guy in Russell Westbrook that, you know, would obviously still be a fantastic rebounder, even if that wasn't the case. But, you know, that, that certainly helps get an extra rebound here or there um, for not only Russ, but other guys on that team when Adams boxes, boxes out so effectively. Um, one thing I would do with, with Brooke Lopez last year in the Lakers for, you know, five, six minute stretches, I would watch just him on defense. Um, so I really kind of wanted to test this theory and, and you know, m- make sure that it was that the stats backed it up and everything. And it's it's really fascinating how he really will, will just clear out the paint completely. And it actually ended up being the most effective um, thing rather than him just getting the rebound himself, because at least for the Lakers, and now you see it with guys like Giannis on the Bucks, um, someone like Brandon Ingram or Lonzo Ball could just get the rebound then instead and then obviously put the, the Lakers in a better position to start the fast break. So I thought it was you know, wildly effective for the Lakers last year and very important. And um, with the Bucks, of course, not doing it quite as much only because he's shooting about another one and a half attempts um, or actually another uh, another full two plus attempts uh, from three this year per game. But when he is down in the paint, he's extremely effective at that. And it is something that, you know, is not going to show up in the box score. It's something that a lot of the fans that don't you know, look look for those little tiny details or appreciate them as much, may not see, but um, it's definitely an underrated aspect, as you said, and, and part of what makes Brooke Lopez so great for Milwaukee. So rounding out their big man rotation, I wanted to talk about DJ Wilson before we move on to some of the players that they added in the middle of the year. With DJ Wilson, he was someone that I was actually pretty high on headed into his draft year. I thought he was the kind of player who could be a really effective multi-position switch defender in the NBA. One of the few guys who you could theoretically say, maybe if he develops right, he actually could guard from one through five. That did not look like it was going to pay off last year. He had a very inconsistent, pretty rough all-around rookie season. He's looked a lot better this year. And even though his offensive game is a work in progress, and work in progress is an understatement, he has at least shown flashes of being that kind of one through five defender that I had hoped for coming into the draft. And quite frankly, if you're Milwaukee, giving more minutes to him as that kind of player as opposed to Thon McCurr is going to be really helpful for this team. Yeah, he, he's almost in a way kind of playing the playing the role that they, they wanted Thon McCurr to play, um, or at least expected him to when when they drafted him. But the one thing that I think is the most most positive sign is, is the huge jump in minutes. Um, he only even got in 22 games last year. Um, as you mentioned, he was kind of making that rookie adjustment. Didn't really didn't really have have any moments throughout the season that really made you you know really made you feel like wow this guy's a really good prospect. But um, gave him time, and uh, this year he's he's done much better. 17, almost 18 minutes a game, and he's actually kind of a perfect complement to the the rest of the front court in a way, just because. You know, he's he's a more athletic um, build, a more um, more versatile player than a guy like Miritich or Ilyasova um, might be. So he, he allows uh, Coach Bud the, the opportunity to really play him in a matchup-dependent way. And if he sees a specific matchup he likes, he might might get more minutes. And then there might, you know, there might be some nights where he doesn't play. But I think that would be more more so indicative of that particular matchup and the shooting the Bucks might want on the floor and and not an indictment on DJ Wilson by any means. Um, overall, I, I have been pretty impressed by him. And him along with um, along with uh, Christian Wood, I'm, I'm not too sure on them. Um, I like Wilson a lot, but I'm encouraged um, or excited, I guess, to see the growth of them moving forward. I hope that we see some of Christian Wood playing down the stretch because he's been absolutely mauling 
G League and D League players for the last couple of years, and in my mind has been pretty close to unequivocally the best player in that league for the last couple of years. There just have been the minutes that he would need to play in Milwaukee. And a lot of those minutes are going to be taken up by two guys that they acquired in the middle of the season. So Nikola Mirotic, they got via trade from the Pelicans. I thought that that was maybe not the biggest move of the trade deadline, but if not the best value at the trade deadline, certainly pretty close. Mirotic is the kind of player that theoretically fit in and has actually fit in right away pretty close to perfectly with the Buck system. He's another stretch four. He's a lot better of a defender than people give him credit for. With the Pau Gasol signing, I'm not sure he'll play anywhere near as much. Certainly not as much as Mirotic, but probably not more than 10 or so minutes a game. Really with Pau, I think it's more about the whole veteran presence thing. I mean, the Bucks have some playoff experience, but not all that much. And obviously, if you're getting Pau Gasol, you're getting someone with not only a lot of playoff experience, but championship experience. I agree with Pau. I, I don't think he's really there um, to do too much other than what you said. Great locker room presence, you know, maybe 10 minutes a game, if that. Um, but for Miritich, I thought that was a fantastic addition. Um, the way they went about completing that trade, too, was especially impressive. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but they turned what, Thon McCurr and Jason Smith? Or no, so they traded um, McCurr for Stanley Johnson, right? And then they traded him and Jason Smith for Miritich. Is that what it was? Yeah, and four second-round picks. Oh, that's right, okay. Which probably aren't going to be that good of second-round picks anyway, so it's basically the same as taking chances on undrafted free agents. at like Right, right. I like the 50s section, like the 50s part of the draft. Those aren't going to be great picks. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a move I, I've made 10 out of 10 times. Um, I honestly was not that surprised of how cheap they got him for, but I, I don't know. I, I thought he could have he could have gone for more somewhere else. But in the brief sample size um, that they do have, it looks like 271 possessions so far with uh, Miritich on the court. Just to paint with kind of a broad brush here, looking at the offensive numbers across the board, all, I see just blue, blue, blue um, s- signaling um, all good ratings in the 98th, 99th, 99th, 99th percentile and all sorts of offensive numbers. Um, Looking at the defensive side, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but you know that that kind of sums up Miritich perfectly. He's going to be a fantastic contributor on the offensive end, um, and you you just hope that he plays you know average and within the team on defense and call it a win. Moving on to the wings and the guards, and I wanted to start with Chris Middleton. It's kind of interesting because Middleton, I think, pretty clearly had a better season last year than certainly the first couple of months of this season. But he made it to his first All-Star game basically on the strength of the Bucks going from a middle-of-the-pack Eastern Conference team to the clear frontrunner in the standings. And for a while, there was a debate between whether Milwaukee or Toronto was the favorite coming out of the Eastern Conference. I was going with Toronto for much of the year, but right around the start of this year, it's become pretty clear that Milwaukee are and should be the favorites. And... That's probably more of why Middleton made the All-Star game this year than anything else, just because they wanted the Bucks to have two All-Stars. But he's done an incredible job of fitting into this new Bucks offense that has him playing a role that's a little bit outside of his comfort zone. He's always been a bit of a mid-range maven, and now he's taking a lot more attempts from three-point range than he ever used to and being used sort of more as a complimentary shooter than someone who's going to spend a lot of time getting to their spots in the 15-foot range. But... He's been really impressive this year, and even though I thought maybe he was a little bit better last year during the regular season, I think he 
I don't know. It's tough to decide whether I thought Middleton or Eric Bledsoe, who we'll talk about in a bit, would have been more of a deserving All-Star, but I'm definitely fine with Milwaukee getting two All-Stars as the clear best team in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely okay with it. Um I I like to see I like to see Middleton's performance in the All-Star game hit a few threes. As far as him versus Bledsoe, that that one is tough. Um but going into the year I would have said Middleton for sure, not even a contest, but um Bledsoe's really really had a nice year. Obviously parlayed that into a nice contract. Um but with Middleton, he's he's been such a consistent um Robin to to the Batman that Gian, that Giannis is um throughout the last few years. He's been a great outside shooter. Um and the only reason you don't see see the stats increasing more this year and, and I guess hear hear more hype about him this year is just just the overall balance of the roster. You know, there's other guys that can do what what he does, not as effectively as he does, but but other guys and, you know, Miritich and, and on down the line that, that can shoot from outside and, and do what he does. But Middleton offers more than that, too. He's a lengthy defender, can often guard um, the best wing on the other team, um, can drive to the bucket, and he's not a bad passer either. So I think he's a deserving all-star. Um, maybe, you know, a lot of the national media might, might not think so, but I, I have no problem with him making the all-star team. Um, I think he and Bledsoe, honestly, deserve more credit than they than they do get in general for their overall great play this season. And someone else who deserves a lot more credit than they've generally been getting. Malcolm Brogdon has been having a spectacular season. And earlier in the year, he was flirting with a 50, 45, 90 kind of year. And his three-point shooting has gone down just a touch since then. But he's shooting 51% from the floor, 43% from deep, 93.7% from the free throw line. He's third on the team in scoring, averaging 16 points a game. He's not a spectacular defender, but he's a solid defender, and he's big enough that he can work in switches basically from one through three. Brogdon has been an incredible complimentary piece for this team, and I'm not sure he gets enough credit for that. I think a lot of people are still a bit unfair towards Brogdon because they don't think he deserved the Rookie of the Year award that he won. But, I mean, if we're comparing Brogdon and, say, I don't know, Michael Carter-Williams, it's pretty clear that Brogdon is actually an effective NBA player and not someone who just won that Rookie of the Year by stat stuffing. Yeah, it, exactly. I know a lot of people don't like that he won that award, as you said, but he's the epitome of just a solid player. Um, he's not, not a guy that's going to make a ton of mistakes or, on the flip side, not a guy that's going to really light up the box score. But, um, you know, you dig deeper and you see some of those shooting numbers that you brought up and you... If you watch him and you see how he plays within the team, um, he can play on ball, off ball, effective on both ends of the court. There's there's nothing I don't like about about him. He's never going to be a star, never going to get get the hype or anything. But that honestly kind of gels really well with the rest of the supporting cast in Milwaukee. A lot of guys that are continuously underrated, and um, that kind of bodes well for them moving forward. Honestly, if if people either underrate them or or don't um, don't expect that they're going to get you know, a heavyweight punch from Milwaukee, they're going to be, they're going to be in for a surprise. So I really like what they, what they have there. And um, I, I tell you what, I, I just can't wait to see him in the playoffs. Another really underrated role player type for the Bucks. Tony Snell is almost the epitome of a three and D player. He's not going to do much on the offensive end other than curl around screens and shoot from deep. He's not going to be a gambler on the defensive end he's gonna guard his guy he's gonna fit in and help defense and play his role on that front and it's really interesting with Snell that he's developed such a great chemistry with Giannis on getting open for three-point shots they run a lot of two-man game kind of plays with Giannis and Tony Snell that really show how great their chemistry is together and 
I mean, you can't really ask for much more from Tony Snell than what he's been giving you, and he's been giving the Bucks that consistently, basically since he joined the team. Yeah, Tony Snell really is just that you know that three and D you know st- play your role and don't don't do anything else type player. Um, I'm sure if anyone out there plays fantasy basketball, I'm sure you've noticed that he, he's a guy that can get at least in the past um, get 35 minutes and and not record hardly any stats at all. But his current role with the team. Um, Combined with the fact that he's improved a bit, um, he's he's in a nice spot. The expectations are low. He doesn't really need to be, um, a, you know, a huge member of the rotation. But you know, when he's out there, is second best three point shooter, um, at least statistically on the team. Thirty nine percent from deep um, is a lengthy guy. Can play can play good defense. And um, he, as you mentioned as well, he does have that that nice level of chemistry with Giannis. So I mean, there's you know, Tony Snell's not going to be someone that you're running out to the store to buy his jersey or anything like that. He's not going to be super exciting when you watch him, but he's one of those types of guys that every every team needs and, um, for lack of a better term, really excels behind the scenes. Before we move on to talking about Eric Bledsoe and his brand new contract, sort of towards the back end of the wing and guard rotation is the minutes battle between Pat Connaughton and Sterling Brown. Brown is a better three-point shooter than Connaughton. Connaughton is a bit better of a distributor. Neither of them is particularly brilliant on the defensive end, but neither of them is particularly terrible on that end of the floor either. Who do you think is going to see more minutes between the two of them going down the stretch? That, that's tough, honestly. Um, I'd probably give it, I guess, Sterling Brown. Um, I haven't really been too excited with what I've seen from uh, Pat Connaughton, although I, I did, I was at least um, on the surface intrigued when they when they brought him in. I, I liked his game from time to time in, in Portland. But I think if everything's going right, um, ideally you don't need to count on either of these guys, at least not in the playoffs. Um, down the stretch, I, I probably lean Brown, I guess. But hopefully, um, at least in a playoff series, you know you can get, get by with um, Brogdon and, and Snell capturing those minutes instead of those guys. But I guess if I have to pick one, I'll go Sterling Brown. Let's circle back to Eric Bledsoe. He recently signed a four-year, $70 million contract extension, which really I would have hoped that he'd done from a hair salon in Phoenix, but he probably did somewhere out in Los Angeles, given the timing of it. And that was a really interesting move, just because you don't usually see contract extensions happening in March. You know, usually it's either earlier in the season, during the off-season, but certainly not in March all that frequently. And I think that says something about the Bucks really being committed to trying to keep this roster together going forward. Obviously, the big question comes this offseason with what happens with Chris Middleton, but Bledsoe's still only 29 years old. I think it feels like he's been in the league for a lot longer than that. And on the one hand, signing a relatively undersized point guard who relies on his athleticism a decent amount to a contract extension isn't always worth it. See John Wall and the Washington Wizards. But with Bledsoe, I think it's a pretty fair contract, and certainly he is going to be more valuable to Milwaukee than pretty much anyone else. Yeah, I, I think it's perfect on both sides, honestly. Um, for Milwaukee, getting, you did mention the timing was kind of odd, I thought, but you know, getting that secured heading into the offseason so you can just focus on, on bringing back Middleton uh, for the most part is great. And uh, four years, 70 million is relatively team friendly, at least in, in today's NBA terms, at least. Um, Bledsoe's really coming to his own in Milwaukee. I, I thought it was probably a good fit when he got traded there, but now it's it's very clear that it's it's an excellent fit. His, you know, 
small, I guess, small weaknesses or concerns, if you will, just being slightly undersized are are definitely mitigated by um, the coaching scheme. Milwaukee's great overall team defense um, and the versatility and balance um, that the rest of the guards blend together and, and forwards as well. So I really like him moving forward. I think it's a smart deal for, for Milwaukee. Um, Might have got more on the free agent market, probably, maybe, but doesn't really matter. He appears happy in Milwaukee, and he's playing the best basketball of his career. So happy for him. The most important person to the success of the Milwaukee Bucks this season has been Giannis. But I think a pretty clear second on that list has been Mike Budenholzer. So let's talk about what he's done for this team for a little bit. The Bucks have already won more games than they did last season, which is both hilarious and kind of disturbing. And Bud has completely revolutionized the Milwaukee offense to make it a more modern NBA offense. Really, let's just say an NBA offense, period, because I'm not really sure they had that last season. Defensively, he's made them a lot less aggressive, a lot less switch happy. That was something that a number of NBA teams seem to have figured out towards the end of the previous coach's tenure. Honestly, the best way I can put it is just that the Bucks went from maybe the worst coach in the NBA and certainly a bottom five coach in the NBA to a clear top five coach in the NBA in Mike Budenholzer. And even though a lot of the credit has to go to Giannis and some of the other Bucks players who've made major leaps this season, it's just so obvious that they went from one coach to the other and made a few offseason additions, to be clear, but didn't revolutionize the roster. And all of a sudden, they're a much, much better team than they were last year. Yeah, the, the difference is astounding. Um, Jason Kidd was definitely a bottom five coach. I think you're totally, totally right about that. When you look at their offensive ratings and defensive ratings, as far as uh, this year compared to last year, they have a 113.7 offensive rating this season. That's up um, 3.9 from last year when they had a 109.8 offensive rating. The defensive rating has been wildly improved, too. Um, that's down, and of course you want this one lower. That's down to 104.6 after hovering around 110 last year and, and the year before that. Uh, Coach Budenholzer has brought not only um, those great defensive changes, um, but he's, re- he's really done a great job of, I guess you could say, um, focusing where the Bucks want to take their shots from. They take, um, I believe, the most shots from three of any team. And then on the defensive side of the ball, they actually allow the most from three. But the thing is, they're they're so good in the restricted area and at the rim that the fact that they allow so many threes do, doesn't even matter. They've got guys that, that can contest them effectively and not allow teams to shoot a great percent of them. Um, I want to give a lot of credit to, to Coach Bud on, on that as well. You certainly didn't see that last year. The last few years, Milwaukee was actually notorious for being just atrocious at defending the rim. Um, power forwards and centers just always seem to have big games versus them um, on the glass and and scoring the ball. But this season, Brooke Lopez, as well as the effect Coach Budenholzer, Coach Budenholzer has had, we've also got Giannis, who's in the Defensive Player of the Year discussion. They really locked down the uh, the rim to protect the the paint and also forced opponents into a lot of mid range jumpers. Which, as if you've been following the NBA the last couple of years, you know that mid range jumpers are are not exactly the most efficient way to play basketball. So that combination is a win- is a winning recipe, and I think it's got Coach Budenholzer right right there in the discussion for Coach of the Year. You brought up the defense that Milwaukee has been playing at the rim this year, and I think that's a great point. Something that I think isn't talked about enough when we discuss the three-point revolution that's currently enveloping the NBA is that 
the best shot in basketball is still the shot right at the rim in terms of efficiency. Even as the league has gotten better on average at shooting from long distance, even as you're starting to see more players in the Steph Curry mold of shooting from 30 plus feet entering the league, the most efficient shot in basketball is still a dunk. And Milwaukee has done an incredible job of getting those shots for themselves and really Giannis getting those shots for himself on one end of the floor. And then on the other end, you know, you can allow more three pointers than other teams if you're just stifling people at the rim, because again, those are the most efficient points, the ones right at the basket. And so even if you're giving up more of the second most efficient shot type than most teams, they are still doing a good job, as you pointed out, of forcing teams to take mid-range shots, which aren't as efficient. And then, again, just shutting down the basket is still the most effective way to prevent other teams from putting points up on the board. And a lot of credit for that has to go to Giannis. A lot of credit for that has to go to Brooke Lopez. A lot of credit for that has to go to the rest of the Bucks role players playing good support defense. But the difference between Mike Budenholzer's defensive scheme and Jason Kidd's defensive scheme is pretty hilarious, actually. Yeah, it's really night and day. I, I feel um, feel that every Bucks fan would probably agree with agree with the sentiment that uh, getting rid of Jason Kidd and Joel Prunty was probably good riddance. Coach Budenholzer has been fantastic for them and and got them playing at the the best basketball in the league right now. So it's been fantastic for them. All right, let's look ahead with this Bucks team and see what the playoffs might look like for them. And I wanted to start off by discussing their chances of getting to the finals and. When I did the Raptors podcast earlier this season with Jordan Kligman, I basically said that I would have had the Raptors pretty close to 55% and then the field at about 45%. I think I'd probably flip that at this point in the year. I'd say I think there's a 55-ish percent chance that the Bucks are the Eastern Conference representative in the NBA Finals and then like a 45% chance for the rest of the teams in the East, which I'd probably break down as like 30 to 35% chance Toronto makes the finals and then 10 to 15 percent for the Celtics and the Sixers combined but I think it's become pretty clear over the course of the year that Toronto started out really hot but just overall the Bucks have been the better team what are your thoughts on Milwaukee's chances of reaching the NBA finals I'd probably put it somewhere in the range of 40 to 45 percent probably have probably have Toronto around 30 to 35 percent and then I guess I'd give the rest to Philly I was going to give some to Boston, but this could be uh, <laughs> recency bias, but I'm watching the Boston game right now, and I'm not going to say that team is going to make the finals or has any chance to. Um, but I, I do think it's Milwaukee and Toronto. I'm not trying to dismiss the Sixers by any means. I just think that there's, I don't know, I just think there's a few a few exploitable issues and a few things that could come up um, in the playoff series. But, you know, they, they certainly at least still have at least somewhat of a chance to make the finals um, with that roster. But for the Bucks, I'd say, you know, in that 40 to 45 percent range um, as a chance to make the finals, really, it just comes down to, um, honestly, probably one game in a seven game series between a hypothetical seven game series between them and Toronto um, could swing the whole series. So if they come out and they, they play their, their A game in every game and they don't really have any, any games where they just look like an inexperienced team as, as far as playoffs go, I think they have probably, as, as it stands right now, the best shot in the Eastern Conference to get there. I would agree with you that I'm pretty much out on the Celtics' chances of making the finals. There's just something that doesn't work right about that team, be it chemistry, be it the fit between the offensive stars or relative stars on that team. I don't have much confidence in them. 
with Philly, when it comes to the playoffs, people always talk about how, you know, oh, the rotations tighten up. So if your bench isn't as good, it doesn't matter as much. With Philly, they're basically five deep, namely their starting lineup and not much depth beyond that. And even that is assuming that J.J. Redick will get out of his recent shooting slump because if he's not shooting well, he's really not a valuable NBA player at all. So I don't have all that much confidence in anyone outside of the Bucks and the Raptors. And when you're comparing those two teams, I think that it's pretty close in terms of the number one guy. I would probably give the edge to Giannis this season over Kawhi. And then if you just go from number two on down on each roster, I think regular season Kyle Lowry is probably better than Chris Middleton. I think playoff Kyle Lowry... People tend to underrate because they blame a lot more of the postseason failures on Lowry when they should blame a lot more of them on DeRozan. But I think at number one, the Bucks have an edge. I think at number two, the Raptors probably have an edge, but it's pretty close. From three on down on each of those rosters, I just believe in everyone that Milwaukee has so much more. And I guess maybe that's a slight against Pascal Siakam that I didn't mean, but I just have a lot more confidence in Milwaukee's depth and even if you're only playing eight or nine guys in the playoffs, if your six through nine guys are much better than their six through nine guys and your starting lineups are pretty close to even, I mean, Edge seems to go to the team with the deeper bench. Yeah, um, and, on, and on Pascal Siakam real quick, I, I would say at this point, honestly, I don't even know if it's a hot take anymore, but I, I would say he's the second best player in the Raptors. And I, I might even argue that Kyle, Kyle Lowry is the fourth best player in the Raptors, to be honest with you. Um, take that with a grain of salt. I'm notoriously not a big Kyle Lowry guy. But he certainly has had better performances, or at least at times, in the playoffs. And he's got the experience along with Kawhi. So that's something you've got to be concerned about. But um, I think Milwaukee overall has enough and more advantages, um, especially in the coaching aspect as well, to, to possibly overcome that. But just circling back to the Celtics real quick, um, while I don't think they have the chance to make the, the Eastern Conference, or excuse me, to make the NBA Finals, I will note that they've, um, in the recent past, um, been a tough matchup for Milwaukee. A lot of that was more during the kid Prunty days, but at times they've definitely struggled uh, to contain Boston. I think this year it's you know it's not really going to be the same the same issue. Boston's not playing in the same way. They're not um, playing with the same level of, of success. But just wanted to note that um, the Bucks are also two and one this year versus the Celtics. They actually just beat them um, very closely contested game ninety eight ninety seven. Um, I think my buddy Alex went to that game brought home brought home the win for. For the Bucks, he's a huge Bucks fan, so quick shout out to him. But I think moving forward, the best um, best scenario is fans. We want to see the Raptors Bucks, but for the Bucks, you know they they might not want to see that. So moving from Eastern Conference playoffs, just briefly into the finals discussion, do you think the Bucks have a chance against the Warriors? And I just want to preface that by saying I think they have a chance. Like I wouldn't be anywhere near as stunned if Milwaukee beat Golden State than if any other team beat Golden State, maybe even including the Thunder. I think Milwaukee might actually be more of a troublesome matchup for the Warriors than the Thunder, but I just can't pick anyone of the Warriors to win the title this year. I would say my best guess is that it would be Warriors in six, but I don't see it going beyond six games unless something really drastic happens. Yeah, I... I might even say Warriors in five. Um, it's, it's just so hard to see anybody having a chance at all. I know we, we just said so many good things about the Bucks, but um, this is more indicative of just how dominant the Warriors are and less, less about the Bucks not 
not having a chance in that hypothetical series. I do think they'd be able to sneak a game, I want to say, maybe even two. But I just don't think I just don't think anybody at this at this point or honestly in NBA history can match up with the, the current talent level um, and ability of, the, of this current Warriors team. I will say this, and this has sort of been the constant caveat with the Warriors for the past few years, but I think it's more relevant than ever this year. I think if Steph Curry gets hurt, then the Bucks might actually be the favorites. I think if anyone else on the Warriors get hurt, it doesn't even matter. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I think if um, if KD were to were to be out, I, maybe maybe I might say six or seven game series, but still still probably not. Um, I don't know, but I I agree that um, Steph would be more important in that sense. I think that KD is top two in the world, but um, but Steph is the most important player to that team. So never rooting for a player to get hurt, of course. But I agree with you. I would I would think that would hurt the Warriors' chances the most and. Um, that would definitely be an area the Bucks could could take advantage. Bledsoe would have would have instantly a much better matchup. Um, and I mean, we're not forecasting injuries or anything like that. But of course, Curry, while not being injury prone, has had some some ankle issues over the course of his career. So you know, you never know. Um, it's something that could happen. But I think it would probably have to take multiple injuries for the Warriors to not win the title this year. I'm not sure how rare of a take this is for non Warriors fans, but. I've been pretty definitively in the Steph Curry as the second best player in the world camp for quite a while. I just think that his offensive impact is so unprecedented and his defense is not great, but it's at least average. I think the difference between him on offense and anyone else in the NBA on offense in terms of the impact that his shooting gravity has, I think that Steph is just a more impactful player on winning than Kevin Durant, even though Durant has sort of a wider set of skills that he's really, really good at. Curry's skill that he's better at than everybody else is so far off the charts that I think it makes him a better overall player. But we're not here to talk about the Warriors. We're here to talk about the Bucks. So let's circle back to some of the earlier matchups that they might face in the playoffs. And we've talked about a few of those in terms of matching up with some of the top teams in the Eastern Conference. But I wanted to sort of look at first and second round matchups for the Bucks. If we're talking second round, it's at this point almost certainly going to be either Philly or Boston, although maybe Indiana falls out of the top seed or the three seed rather far enough that they end up in that four or five matchup. But I think that the Bucks are probably going to play either Philly or Boston in the second round. I think it doesn't really matter, honestly, who they play in the first round, but I think that Brooklyn and Detroit might take a game off Milwaukee. If it's Milwaukee, Orlando, that's just going to be brutal, brutal for Orlando Magic fans to watch. Yeah, I guess in the first round, it'll be Milwaukee taking on um, whoever emerges from the atrocious Southeast division. Um, man, that division is bad. I, I would um, st- actually kind of prefer the Magic as the first round matchup just from a viewer's perspective. I'd love to see uh, some of the young length on Orlando, like Jonathan Isaac, Aaron Gordon, etc., get to take on Milwaukee. I think they'd get swept. Um, they'd be possibly get a game. I, I kind of doubt that. I'd probably be a sweep, but I think that'd be the most exciting matchup to watch, at least. Um, Kemba in the playoffs is always fun. If the Hornets were to sneak in that eight seed, I don't think it's going to be the the Heat or the Wizards. Both the Wizards have just had one heck of a season, not in a good way, and the Heat are kind of trending down. So it'd probably end up being Orlando or Charlotte, um, probably a sweep either way. 
the second round would get definitely more exciting when you look at a team like, um, I guess, kind of the teams we alluded to. You could see some of those like Celtics, um, Sixers type matchups, but it's not out of the question that they face the Pacers or Nets either. Um, those are probably um, probably something that the media hasn't talked about as much. But the Nets, until a recent cold streak, have been a really exciting team to watch. And I also think the Bucks would have no problem in that series. But that might be one that I would I would kind of root for to happen. I, I would love to see a young, competitive Nets team that kind of plays to the level of their competition uh, take on the Bucks again. It'd be it'd be you know a whitewashing for the Bucks, but but that that'd be a, a really fun series to see outside of the you know, the top few teams like the Raptors, uh, 76ers, and Celtics. I totally agree with you that the Nets would be a really fun opponent for the Bucks. I don't think it's going to be a second-round matchup at this point just because Brooklyn's recent slide means that it's going to be really, really tough for them to make it into the fifth seed. I don't think they're fully eliminated from that yet, but they're pretty close. If they do keep sliding, though, and end up in the eighth seed, I think that Brooklyn's really three-point-heavy approach will be an interesting contrast to the defense that the Bucks have been playing this year that you talked about already, giving up a whole bunch of threes. I think that there could be a couple of those games that are really close. Put it this way, I think that the least likely eighth seed team for the Bucks to sweep would be the Nets. I think that the Nets have the best chance of taking at least one game in that first round series, and I don't think it's particularly likely that the Bucks let a first round series go beyond five games, no matter who they're playing against. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, an interesting note on Brooklyn as well is they kind of sell out to stop the three. So some adjustments would be needed for Milwaukee, but again, not anything they can't overcome. Um, Kenny Atkinson, the coach of the Nets, is one of those guys that's you know really great at, um, at tweaking what his team does just based on the personnel they have. So you could even see something like a, like a zone defense in that series or um, you know some of those types of um, tactical um, changes or adjustments that that would really make a, a series fun for for anybody who's a huge NBA fan like that. So that that would definitely be one I'd love to see. All right, let's wrap up here by talking about the award season haul that is certainly coming Giannis Antetokounmpo's way. I've already said multiple times that I think he's the clear front runner for the MVP award. I think that. James Harden and Paul George are clearly number two and number three. They've had spectacular seasons. As we talked about on the Thunder podcast, I would probably actually have Paul George at two and Harden at three. I think either one of them would be a deserving MVP candidate in like 70% of the seasons that have ever happened in the NBA. But Giannis has been doing all of this while leading the number one team in basketball record-wise and the second best team in the NBA, if you talk about looking at it qualitatively rather than just purely looking at wins numbers. And I think that people have been a bit thrown off by the Russell Westbrook MVP year, not in the triple-double sense, but in the sense that Westbrook got that award as either the sixth or seventh seed. I think they were the seventh seed that year, actually. And that's just not normal when it comes to MVP voting. It almost always goes to the best player on the best team. And this year, that's been pretty clearly Giannis. And unlike some years where the best player on the best team might not have had the most MVP-worthy season, this year, if you're looking at it purely statistically, Giannis still might take it. When you factor team record into it, it seems to be pretty clearly going in Giannis's favor. Yeah, we also saw the Vegas odds shift to to have uh, Giannis listed as the favorite in the MVP race. I think I'll, I'd probably stand by 
not probably. I, I will stand by what I what I said on the Thunder podcast, in which you alluded to with Giannis being the favorite um, and the the deserving MVP, in my opinion. We got Harden and Paul George after after that. Um, I said I think I said yeah I said Paul George number two on the Thunder podcast, and you know I guess it's more of a a two A two B thing for me with Paul George and Harden. There's some games where I watch Harden like like I'm literally doing right now, and I'm I'm thinking to myself, how is this guy not at the very least, no, number two. He should definitely definitely be up there at, at second um, in the MVP discussion. But I think this is kind of a unique year. Uh, Paul George, is, he's really just been so valuable on both sides of the ball. Um, while Harden's, of course, played improved defense, kind of, you know, he's kind of outgrown the, the jokes about, you know, spelling his name with H, H-A-R-E-N with no D. Um, but Paul George and Giannis just have such a tremendous impact on the defensive side of the floor. Giannis and Paul George both would be a good choice for Defensive Player of the Year. I think at this point I might have to give that to Paul George, but I think most importantly the MVP needs to be Giannis's. He's done everything that needs to be done, checked all the boxes, and he just he looks he looks unstoppable right now. He's he's supercharged. He's got this team playing their best basketball, and I think it's his year. He's got to win the MVP in my opinion. So you touched on this, and let's move briefly into talking about it now. The Defensive Player of the Year award voting, I think that MVP should be pretty clearly Giannis's and that Defensive Player of the Year should be pretty clearly Paul George's. That being said, I think that those two guys are second in the other races. I think Giannis would be second on my Defensive Player of the Year ballot. I think Paul George would be second on my MVP ballot. I mean, the Bucks defense really in a lot of ways begins and ends with the fact that Giannis guards. It's a bit of the free safety stuff that you saw from LeBron in Miami, but Giannis is a lot more committed to individual defense than I think LeBron was in Miami, even though LeBron was pretty close to winning Defensive Player of the Year a couple of those Miami years. And Giannis's ability to be as laterally mobile and as vertically mobile as he is, given his size, makes him just impossible for opposing offenses to deal with. And even though I think Paul George has somehow had an even more spectacular year on that end of the floor, it's almost easy to underrate how important Giannis is to the Bucks' defense just because his counting stats look so incredible. But he is a force on the defensive end of the floor, and I would be surprised if he retires without at least one Defensive Player of the Year award on his mantle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll definitely have at least one, if not maybe a couple by the time he's done. Another thing I wanted to add on him, too, which is extremely impressive. He started at point guard the other night without Malcolm Brogdon and Eric Bledsoe in Utah. Um, They went with the lineup of Giannis surrounded by Middleton, Miritich, Ilyasova, and Lopez. And of course, we know, of course, we know Giannis can handle the ball, can distribute, can be a playmaker. Um, The question wasn't whether he can can, you know, play point forward or, or whatever it is. But this is actually starting at point guard in the game and um, having different defensive assignments for, for him as well as the rest of the team that went along with it. And and while they did lose, um, I don't think that's a knock by any means, you know, being without Bledsoe and Brogdon. But while they did lose, it, it really just shows to anybody that didn't already know um, the amazing versatility that Giannis has. He, he really, truly can and is doing it all for Milwaukee. Do you think any other Bucks have any chances at winning awards? Because I think that Eric Bledsoe has a case as a second-team all-defense guard. 
But really, when it comes to the award season, I think it's just going to be piling a bunch of things in Giannis's lap and congratulating the rest of the team on playing really good team-oriented basketball. Yeah, I think um, that probably the extent of the awards off the top of my head for Coach of the Year. I think Coach Bud has definitely got to be there. Um, yeah, no, no one's coming to mind. I guess um, that would that would that would finish ahead of him, in my opinion, at least. Um, Bledsoe definitely has a case for second team defense for sure. I guess you could argue that he's got a case for most improved player, but the thing is, there's just so many candidates that are so good this year, like you know Pascal the Pascal Siakams of the world that. I don't think he'd realistically have a chance to win that, but I think you'll at least at least see him come in and on second or third team defense or see I, I want to say Chris Middleton making third team all NBA, but that's that's probably a long shot, honestly. But I think for the Bucks, if if you can get that Giannis MVP and, and coach of the year to Budenholzer, um you're sitting pretty you're pretty happy with that haul. All right. Anything else before we wrap up? No, it's been it's been fun watching the Bucks this year. Always great talking basketball with you, Nick. So looking forward to, to seeing this team play in the playoffs. All right. Well, he is Nathan Smith. You can find him on Twitter at NateSmithNBA. And you can find his written work on the hashtag basketball website. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can also find my written work on the hashtag basketball website. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback of any kind, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.